0: everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Brad Bernstein, Managing Partner at FTV Capital. Brad has been a growth equity investor at FTV Capital for over 18 years, leading investments in enterprise technology and services and financial services. Brad also has over 25 years of private equity experience. Prior to FTV, Brad was a partner at Oak Hill Capital Management and its predecessors, where he managed the business and financial services group. He began his private equity career with Patrick Hoff and Company Ventures and started his professional career in the investment banking division of Merrill Lynch in New York. In today's episode, we discuss the changing private equity investment landscape, FTV's investments into Infusion, PlateIQ, Paddle, and eBanks, and what Brad is most excited for in the fintech landscape moving forward. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Brad, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to have you here with us. How are you doing and where are you calling in from?
1: I'm doing great, Anirud, and pleasure to be here. I'm calling in from Connecticut.
0: Great. Uh, weather's getting pretty good in the East Coast now. Hopefully it comes your way pretty soon. Um, Looking but forward let's to just, it. Yeah, let's just jump right into it. So for people who might not know, uh, could you provide an overview of your career to date and how you became involved in fintech?
1: Sure. So I started my career at Merrill Lynch Investment Banking, now Bank of America, and was put into the financial sponsor coverage group of the time. This is back in the early 90s when there were a lot of leverage buyouts that needed to be restructured and ended up working with a lot of private equity firms and quickly determined that what they were doing was really exciting and very uh, interesting in terms of the way that they made the key decisions for their portfolio companies and decided that's the direction I wanted to go with my career I applied to business school, but thought, you know what? I've been doing a lot of balance sheet restructuring. Why don't I get a totally different experience before business school? So I went to work for the predecessor to Apex called Patrick Hoff & Co. Ventures and started doing some venture capital. I had deferred my business school admission when I got a call from a gentleman I had met in my interview process, leaving banking, to come to a private equity firm called Oak Hill Capital. And I met with them, really liked the people and thought, well, if I went to business school, this is the job I wanted. I can always go back to business school. Why don't I do that? And so I went from Patrick to Oak Hill. I stayed there for 10 years and went from associate to partner, working on a wide range of investments, but also ended up running the business and financial services group in Oak Hill's first institutional fund. And while I was there, had the opportunity to work on a transaction where everyone thought we should bring in a value-added co-investor. And one of my partners on the West Coast recommended this new firm, FTV, which had this strategic network that could add a lot of value to the investment. And so I met these folks and was really impressed by the network they had. They gave me access to CEOs, COOs, CIOs of all the clients that this company coveted. And as I like to say, I had value-add envy. And uh, uh, when I saw their ability to do business development and, and, and help commercialize and accelerate the success of the company, that really blew me away as well. And so I built a relationship with them, and I was very fortunate that they also liked me. And asked me to open and run the New York office for FTV. And that was 19 years ago. And it's been uh, an amazing run since uh, working with the team and building FTV Capital.
0: So have you still continued to defer the uh, MBA uh, application?
1: <laughs> I, I, I have deferred the MBA. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, you know, I'll, I'll always regret that I never had those two years of fun. But on the other hand, it's been a
0: good run. No, I'm just kidding. It's safe to say it's worked out really well for you and for FTV. I saw you guys recently closed Fund 7 uh, with over now in, in total $6.2 billion raised. Um, so congratulations on that. And and can you just talk a little bit about what you think has made FC, FTV so successful over the past uh, few decades?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, interestingly, we were really one of the first funds to focus on the intersection of enterprise technology and financial services, and understand that the internet and digitization was going to be transformative for financial services as an industry. And so, when you think about how we've attacked that since our founding, uh, there were there were two core principles at the beginning, and we've added two others that I think are the foundation of our success. The first is domain expertise, and I. Anyone who's going to be on this podcast probably talks about that. But at FTV, because we've been focused on this from day one, we've built huge depth in our sector teams where we're looking at every subsector of financial services from insurance and specialty finance, and payments, banking, mortgage, asset management, wealth management, capital markets. We have people who are experts in every one of those domains. And then on the enterprise side, We have a team that's looking at every function within the enterprise, particularly for financial services, but also on healthcare, insurance companies, and and kind of related transaction processing businesses, and thinking about what innovation is going to impact those enterprise functions. And so that expertise is a critical foundation. The second, as I referenced earlier, is our strategic network. The firm was founded on the idea Of a strategic network that would add enormous value to the way we think about where we should be investing, help us do diligence on the companies we were reviewing by validating their offering, and then being available for business development to help drive sales success. And so over time, we've cultivated a network of 500 operating executives at over 150 Fortune 1000 financial services firms. And we have a dedicated business development team that is working with them, talking to them on a regular basis, facilitating dialogue between our investment team and our portfolio companies with that network. And that really informs everything we do and hopefully accelerates the success of our portfolio companies. What we've added to those two things as the market has evolved is first around sourcing, like many growth firms. We have a proactive sourcing approach, and we've added a proprietary software program called ProSourcer, and we have a dedicated team that develops the data and the software to improve the workflow and enhance how we source transactions. And so we're able to track 20,000-plus companies actively and then speak with 5,000 companies a year to really find the best companies and know all the interesting emerging trends and companies in the sectors we cover. And then the final piece is FTV Propel. This is our operating team that works with our portfolio companies, bringing functional experts to serve the founders and help them fix, enhance, uh, apply best practices to the various functions that our experts know really, really well.
0: We, we tend to get a lot of early stage VCs on the show, and um, in some ways, what you've described just now is, is fairly similar to that model. Uh, but I'm sure there are a few, a handful of differences uh, since you're focused more on growth equity. Could you just describe that um, those differences a little bit, and maybe even, I mean, a like mathematically, you know, what stage, what dollar amount do you look at, and then, and then b maybe more culturally, like how, how do you guys differ?
1: Sure. So. I think the first thing is that, you know, we're looking for companies that have proven out the market, proven out the product, proven out the revenue and financial unit economics in a way that there's enough validation, uh, enough data to kind of dig into that you can really understand and project out what the performance of the business is going to be. And so that typically means there's going to be 10 15 million of revenue at the time we invest minimum and it can go up to 50 or or even more or even 100 million of revenue at the time of our investment. Our capital is very flexible. We make minority investments, we make control investments, we fund primary capital for growth, capital for add-on acquisitions, capital for liquidity to shareholders. If we find a company we love, we're very flexible about getting money into the company. One of the key differences, we typically lead, invest, and we typically lead, invest into companies where they are bootstrapped by founders or where there's a modest amount of venture capital. We're usually looking for pretty capital-efficient businesses, and we're not typically looking at late-stage venture rounds where they're syndicated with multiple parties. We do require minimum growth rate of 20%. But just to give you a sense, our last couple of funds, the full portfolios are growing north of 50% a year. So that's the kind of growth we're typically sustaining through our support and uh, working with these founders. And we invest, majority of our capital is invested in, in North America, but we do invest internationally as well. And we've had quite a few successes in Europe, Latin America, Israel, India, So those are markets we continue to look at as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, kind of steering clear of those large syndicated VC rounds. Um, But on on the flip side, I'm I'm curious if you've seen an an impact in the companies you're looking at due to alternative investing, uh, the rise of alternative investing, particularly for for growing businesses. And I'm talking specifically about like revenue-based financing, factoring, things like that.
1: I mean, the whole private equity ecosystem has matured so much over the last 20 years and provides a wide array of financing options for our companies and just for the market. And so there's no question that it impacts where we play and helps us facilitate different financing options. I think one of the things we also see is that there's so many opportunities for founders to stay private longer and bring in new investors for each stage, but without having to access the public markets, which is attractive to many of the the entrepreneurs we work with. Um, We also do look at the debt financing, but less so. We tend to be less leverage-oriented in our portfolio companies, but we do uh, occasionally find situations where that can be an attractive piece to the puzzle. So, you know, having more options is a great, great opportunity for these companies to continue to to grow and flourish. Um, You know, in our case, the stage we typically invest at is at a stage where companies do not want to use a lot of debt financing and really want not just the capital, but a true value-added partner. And so that's really the target customer for our capital, someone who really cares about having someone at the table who's going to increase the probability of success and increase the size of that success.
0: And you mentioned the public markets uh, just now a little bit. I'm curious if you've seen kind of a trickle down effect from the recent public market cool down over the past couple months to your work and the companies you're looking to invest in.
1: Sure. So we have actually spent a lot of time analyzing the impact of these kinds of changes on the market, and we do expect a change to come. We, what you, if you look historically, the private market reacts slower. Than the public market, and it can take six to nine months to see the flow through from public valuation changes to private market changes. And the first thing you see is a slowdown in activity. And I think we are seeing a little bit of that. And that slowdown really reflects the change in or the spread in buyer and seller uh, expectations. And then what you'll see is over six to nine months, the market will mature and we'll see some change. So we do think having a brand new fund in this environment is a great place to be. And we think there will be some fantastic opportunities uh, over time. That being said, our strategy is consistently to focus on alignment with partners who have realistic valuation expectations for the long term and underwrite investments with those realistic expectations over the long term. And so we don't we don't have any material change in expectation for our portfolio based on the volatility we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that the timing of this fund is pretty close to perfect, I have to imagine, for you guys. I mean, you really offer your portfolio companies the opportunity to ride through this cool down uh, and uh, potentially come out the other end of it with you a know, secure sense of uh, sourcing for capital.
1: Absolutely, And, you know, interestingly, we've, act, we've actually already deployed 500 million of the new fund in Q1, which reflects the activity level we had and the pipeline we had built, and the relationships uh, that we were working with it, it, at the end of last year into this year. So we're off to a great start and we're very excited about the opportunity we see over the next 12 months and beyond.
0: So maybe let's narrow in now a little bit more on what FTV has been working on. I would love to hear how you've seen the fintech landscape evolve. You mentioned you've been there for, for 19 years. I I would be surprised if fintech was even a, a term when you started. How has that kind of changed uh, over the, the seven funds that you've raised?
1: Sure. Well, obviously, the proliferation of fintech investors has been really interesting to see over those 19 years. And the only thing that's grown faster— is the number of fintech companies. So the good news is, for all the investor interest, there's also just been a massive increase in the number of companies. And the what's really driving that, as, as I mentioned earlier, is the digitization of finance and the embedding of finance in every aspect of industry and markets. And so we have seen the evolution of that as we talk to our strategic network and understand how their needs and trends and expectations are changing. And that's all been, you know, remarkable to see that evolution. Obviously, when you think about going from client server to cloud, when you think about the electronification of payments, when you think about e-commerce and the embedding of finance in the e-commerce, you think about going from embedding payments to lending to insurance into products, all of these evolutionary trends are things that we're constantly trying to figure out, as Wayne Gretzky says, where the puck is, you know, where the puck is going as opposed to where it is. And that is, you know, really the benefit of our strategic network to see those trends and understand the evolution. You know, one of the important ways that we think about fintech is that you've got the disruptors, the innovators that offer a wide range of investment opportunities. And then you have the incumbents looking to defend their position and they need enterprise technology and solutions that allow them to compete with or stay up with those innovators. And so we're really have to be experts in both, but have spent a lot of time thinking about what are those enterprise solutions that the incumbents need to continue to offer compelling solutions to their clients.
0: Mm-hmm. And and just you know, Zooming into that last point a little bit, are there any, in, in particular, recent trends in fintech that you're particularly excited to invest in, whether B2B or B2C?
1: There are many. Uh, I don't want to give all of our greatest ideas for 2022 away, but I would say that we definitely see huge opportunities around low-code, no-code software solutions, artificial intelligence being embedded in e-commerce solutions. We've just announced a very exciting investment in procurement outsourcing. And we think, particularly with the supply chain problems of today, procurement is going to be one of the most important areas for best practices and new solutions over the next decade as people rethink their supply chains and need to squeeze money out of their vendors in a time of inflation and price pressure.
0: And one of my favorite things to do when I'm talking with investors is to is to highlight or, or, you know, kind of uh, get some additional detail on a few of the investments you've made and what excited you about those. Um, So there's a couple companies I've got here on the list, Um, if you don't mind, uh, just kind of we'll talk through them. Great. So the first one is Infusion. Uh, It's an investment management platform. How'd you uh, get to meet these guys?
1: Sure. So we had a uh, thesis around the need for better technology in the hedge fund market and, and asset management generally. And we identified this company as having the really being the only company with an end to end software solution, it built in the cloud, multi tenant, leveraging a single data set for its clients, which was a seamless solution compared to the traditional client-server offerings that needed to be integrated out in the market. When we called the company, they had been called many, many times and had refused many, many investors, but they were excited about our strategic network and we were able to build a relationship and ultimately buy a significant stake in the company. The thing I love about this story is it's a great example of a, a company that founders had built A fantastic software platform, but really hadn't invested a lot in the operational infrastructure and were relying on referrals from prime brokers and clients to grow 30% plus. And we came in and said, look, guys, you're doing great, but what if we just put a little bit of money into sales and marketing? What if we just try to tweak this and tweak that and maybe upgrade the finance team? And over time, we were able to accelerate the growth rate close to 50% a year, scale the business dramatically, and ultimately get the company to well over $100 in ARR and took the company public last October at one of the highest multiples uh, seen in the fintech SaaS landscape. So a very exciting story, great partnership with the founders where the investments that we were able to make together uh, really took the company to the next level and uh, really excited for what's in store for Infusion.
0: Yeah. Sounds like the uh, Propel team uh, did a real great job uh, with that one.
1: They they did.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, the next company I wanted to talk about was PlateIQ. Uh, sure. That counts uh, payable automation platform.
1: Yeah. So Plate IQ is the first investment in our new Fund7 and – it's another fantastic example where we built a relationship over years in advance with the founders. And when they were getting ready to think about a process, the founder basically offered us the opportunity to make a preemptive proposal and buy the control of the company and be his partner before going to market. And we were able to do that. And this was a situation where the founder decided that. The company needed a new CEO for the next stage of development. And here again, through our network, we were able to identify a fantastic candidate that the founder really liked and bring him in at the closing and bring in a chairman from our network who had fantastic expertise in payments to guide the company in the integration of payment solutions into their software, which is a theme that we spend a lot of time on, vertical software with payment integration, and the the company's off to a fantastic start and um, really exciting offering in the accounts payable space for and, and vendor management for food and beverage hospitality uh, industries. Mm-hmm.
0: It, how is that fairly common or, or pretty uh, unique for a company to come to you and and uh, it's the founder himself saying that we might need a change in CEO and in leadership.
1: You know, it's pretty unusual, um but not uh, but but it does happen and when people have very large equity stakes, they tend to really want to think about what's the best thing to maximize their value and and every once in a while we find a founder who really knows their strength is that sort of 0 to 20 as opposed to 20 to 100 and you know nothing but the greatest respect for founders who can recognize what their strengths are and, and really lo- lean into that skill set and, and kind of give up the reins when it makes sense for the business
0: yeah, I agreed it's I think it's really impressive for the person to put uh, you know the company first and, and recognize that maybe that requires a different role from them Absolutely. Um, yeah I had a couple more companies in mind if you don't mind, uh, both actually in the payment space which you just mentioned um, the The next one is paddle.
1: Absolutely. So Paddle is a very exciting company that we invested in last year. They provide a payments e-commerce solution for SaaS software companies globally. So if you happen to be a software developer who built a great software solution in Poland and you want to sell that to customers all over the world, you want to have an e-commerce solution that people can download the software and pay in any currency and manage all the taxes and compliance and documentation you need. And they basically offer the best-in-class solutions for that. They're headquartered in London. And uh, one of my partners built a great relationship there and was able to develop a proprietary opportunity, which worked out exceptionally well. And I think uh, over the coming months, you'll be hearing some really exciting news about their continued expansion and, and growth. But a great example of the intersection of both payments, cross border, global trade, and SaaS software all overlaid on each other in a really powerful way.
0: And can you just talk a little bit about Loan Pro as well?
1: Loan Pro is a SaaS software solution for lenders to do their servicing. So if you think about loan servicing, it's a market that is really on the back end of lending, it's not the sexiest part of lending but has had a lot of antiquated solutions for way too long. And so three brothers in Utah founded this company. They actually built the software out of a Mexican R&D facility they had and had had no institutional money. They had been profitable, growing rapidly, and had a combination of traditional customers and some next-generation new fintech clients And we're looking for a partner, their first institutional investor, to work with them on their next stage of growth and development. And here again, one of my partners built a great relationship with the team, persuaded them that our combination of expertise and FTV Propel would really add value to what they were trying to do. And we were able to make this investment last year and are seeing great momentum with the company as they move up market and, and add new institutional clients.
0: Uh, thank you for bearing with me on that, on uh, all of these questions. I appreciate it. Uh, the last company I had in mind was Ebanks.
1: Ebanks is a Brazilian payments company. We met them a number of years ago when they were relatively small and they were offering payment solutions to multi- national companies that wanted to access Brazilian consumers. So companies like Airbnb or Sony PlayStation that have Brazilian customers who want to make payments to international companies from Brazil. And with e-commerce exploding, they were able to grow very, very quickly. And over time have added an array of other payment solutions for the domestic market, other Latin American markets, and This company has become a powerhouse in Latin American payments, but started off as a very small investment. And we have worked closely with management in their maturation, scaling, building of infrastructure. And uh, it's a company to keep on your radar over the next uh, year or two because very exciting things are happening there.
0: I appreciate you uh, bearing with me with all those uh, portfolio companies. Uh, Always fun to hear uh, investors' thoughts uh, in the companies. Maybe we can zoom out a little bit now and look at at fintech as an industry again. Are there any trends that you're particularly excited for in the next, say, three to five years, maybe that haven't quite shaped out yet, but you think interesting to watch?
1: Sure. The only ones that I would add to some of the ones we discussed earlier, I would would just say that healthcare payments and healthcare claims processing are really at the beginning of transformation, learning from much of what has gone on in fintech, and taking that and applying it to healthcare, I think can be a very powerful driver of efficiency in in the healthcare ecosystem. And so that's something we're working on where we think our domain expertise can add a ton of value. And then Many people are talking about InsurTech. I would just say that I think embedded insurance is a really interesting next extension from embedded finance. And I think insurance as an industry is way behind banking. And the opportunity for innovation, the opportunity for continued progress there is exciting to be focused on. We have an investment in a next generation, all digital pet insurance company called many pets that has been a leader in the UK that just arrived in the US but is a great example of how technology can transform the customer experience and bring enormous value to the marketplace.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just interested how does how would many pets work how, where does how do you embed pet insurance
1: Well, in that case, it's not an example of embedding. In that case, it's an example of digitizing and and using new technology and new data analytics to do different things. So one, they improve the underwriting where they can underwrite any pet at any age. So they they have the data analytics to price any risk. Second, they have a televet solution. So they instantaneously get you to the right person on the phone to help mitigate claims by leveraging a TeleVet solution. Third, they've automated the claim processing. So there's virtually no human touch, which drives enormous efficiency in the claim process. Mm -hmm. And all of that is really seamless for the consumer. And when you think about one of the challenges you see with incumbents is that they're so bogged down in legacy process and legacy systems it's very hard for them to adapt to those kinds of competitors. And that's where being sort of the last to market and having that nimble, uh, state-of-the-art systems and infrastructure really gives you a competitive advantage and a much better experience for the consumer.
0: Yeah. And then on the flip side of the previous question, um, are there any areas in fintech that um, maybe you think are a little bit overcrowded or or have a higher barrier for you to invest in them?
1: Sure. I'm sure you have spent plenty of time on your podcast talking about the crypto market and Web3. Uh, We obviously follow it very closely. As a consumer, it's a market I'm excited about and interested to see how it evolves. As an investor, we believe that the market is overheated. We think it's probably at hype cycle peak, and we are looking forward to seeing that market evolve. Where there will be more clarity on who the winners are and more clarity on valuation metrics that make sense for the long term.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And, and Brad, the last thing I wanted to do today was just kind of ask you a few rapid fire questions to help the, uh, the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Hoping for answers here in about 10 seconds or less. Uh, ready to go? Ready. Let's do it. Uh, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: So I minored in Chinese Mm. and lived there in the 1980s. And as a result, I'm not that interested in investing in China.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Interesting. Uh, What is your favorite hobby?
1: I'm going to go with wake surfing, a sport I learned later in life, but really enjoy.
0: Very cool. Which accomplishment are you most proud of?
1: On a personal level, obviously, my marriage of 25 years and my children uh, are top of mind. But I would say from a business perspective, the team at FTV and the culture are something I'm really proud of and feel like I've invested 20 years in building. And we were all together in uh, Miami for an offsite last week, and it uh, just was great to see how amazing the team is together and and the culture we have. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, And last question for you today, and feel free to take a little bit longer on this if you'd like. What does success look like for you and for FTV?
1: Sure. So when I think about uh, success for FTV, I think about two things. The first is for our portfolio companies. And in that case, one of our traditions at FTV is that when we have a successful exit, we invite founders to come to our annual meeting and do what we call a victory lap, where they share their story. And to me, success is hearing them genuinely explain how our partnership made them successful, made them more successful, and how they enjoyed the collaboration and the process, the journey, and, feel, and, and the recognition of, of having achieved something really terrific for themselves and our investors. So I want to see lots of victory laps in the future. For the firm, you know, I think as a managing partner, any leader, I really define success by looking at succession. And if I've done my job, I've put in place an amazing team of leaders who, when it's time for Brad to go to the beach, I can have confidence that they're going to continue to do great things at FTV. And so hopefully I'll be able to look back fondly and see the next generation continuing uh, to do great things here over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, Brad, I think that's probably a pretty good place to to wrap it up today, but I really appreciate your time. Great to get to pick your brain on all your different uh, portfolio companies. Uh, And uh, here's to hoping for uh, many more victory laps to come.
1: Terrific. Thanks. Pleasure speaking with you today.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments it means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners if you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on linkedin instagram medium and twitter at warden fintech there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry i would also like to thank our editor Raphael austria for his incredible work on our episodes Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.